All right, so we have just concluded our blended sermon series. And you guys, there has been a lot that these sermons have caused us to have to wrestle with and try to unpack and, and, and deal with. And so we've asked you throughout this series to send in questions that some of the sermons have brought to mind for you. And thank you so much for doing that. You have, and we appreciate that. And so tonight we get to answer some of those questions. And I'm going to invite up Greg, Sandra, and Kevin. You guys know Greg. Sandra is the director of The Lift, one of our partner ministries here, and we love the work that she's doing and um, are so excited about the way God is using her. And then we've got Kevin as well, who is another one of our pastors here on staff, and he oversees our um, discipleship school. And so, and then you've got Greg. So they are going to... And then... It's him. So they are going to answer your questions. During this uh, night, we are still going to take live questions. If you have them, you can text them into the text line, 651-321-3030. We are going to try to get to as many questions as we can. Uh, We apologize in advance that we won't get to all of them. We know that. But just send them in. Ask anyway. Also, we want to let you know that each service we are tackling different questions. So you will want to watch or listen on the podcast for the other services too, because maybe your question doesn't get answered tonight, but it may get answered in one of the services tomorrow. Okay? So let's get started with our Q and A. All right. Woo. Good job, Shannon. One moment. All right. Are we ready? Y'all ready? Yes. Do you need to do like any stretching? I I need a few minutes to collect myself. I know. I figured you might. Deep breaths? Okay. (laughs) All right. Here we go. So this uh, question says, I have a parent who has never learned how to deal with his emotions. The holidays make him go haywire. He gets really excited, but then feels insecure about his excitement and acts out in anger instead. His moods cause tension for the whole family. Do you have any advice for me or for someone in his shoes? Is this one of your kids? That really- no, 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 I was <laughs> yes. going to say, I, 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 Kevin, your kids, uh, you know, I, we told him not to ask that question. So how many of you don't have a parent that has a little bit of that, some of that there? I'll start with this one. Um, yeah, first of all, I would just say that's a very honest question. And the, the way it was framed was he, the, the parent, I think it was the father, has never been helped. He's never learned how to manage emotions. And so I think that's a sad reality for most of us is that emotions, we don't just know automatically how to manage them. We don't understand them. We don't, we're never really taught in our families how, what these things are that rise up in us and overtake us and take us this way or that way. So I think it's a real honest struggle for him to not know that if he's never been taught. So for this person who brought the question, I would just say, have compassion, have patience, um, just have understanding that he hasn't been taught. And then I would say, you know, it's, it's one thing if we expect everything to go really smoothly at holiday gatherings, it's just not going to happen there. But I would encourage this person who asked the question to try to connect with her dad outside of holidays and try to understand, you know, maybe more of his story and how, why he maybe shifts from these emotions and things like this help maybe reflect back to him what she's experiencing or the, the child is, kid is experiencing so that he could be more aware of that and then maybe coach him and help him uh, ahead of time so that, you know, you're just not frustrated in the holiday gathering. But it's really managing emotions is hard for all of us, but it's really a skill that needs to be learned. And then underneath some of those emotional shifts are wounds and there's the need for healing for those. And so this... Uh, 
this child of this uh, father could really maybe encourage her dad to pursue some healing perhaps or counseling if there's the need for that. I don't know if you guys have other thoughts about that, but... Well, there's a, this sounds a little self-promo, but uh, there's a book out there that is really helpful with that. It's called Escaping the Matrix, uh, because it, it's all about what we're doing in our head. We don't realize it, but all of our emotions are associated with stuff that we're doing in our head, what we're seeing and what we're conjuring up and stuff. And we have much more control over our emotions than we think. Uh, you, you can't wish your emotions to go away. If you got it, you just can't like just try hard not to be angry or whatever. That's what people usually think they, you mean by controlling your emotions. Just stuff it. Just bite your upper lip. But your control over your emotions has to do with, with the, the, the cause of it, and that's the representations that are going on in our head all the time. We, we do it automatically, so we're not even aware that we do it. But uh, you, there's ways of getting in touch with that and changing what's going on in your head, which changes your emotions and all that. I have a thought, which is that we can take from this the responsibility that we have par as parents, those of us who are parents, to teach our kids how to manage their emotions. Yeah, so yeah. we taught our kids, not perfectly, but about anger management and dealing with expectations and how to resolve a conflict and those kind of things. Um, and you can really set your kids up to not become that you know, father someday who doesn't know what to do with them. And since I promoted my book, you might want to tell them that you have a book, too, that's coming out here. <laughs> Finally. It's not quite on that topic, but okay. She does have a book coming out. Yeah. Next, I think, in the summer. Spring, summer. Cool. To be tuned. Yeah. All right. So this is something that we got asked quite a bit throughout the series. How do you include people that practice another faith in your community? For example, one of my best friends is Hindu. Oh, I got that. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm, I don't have Hindu, but I got the answer. No, I, well, I want to first say that what we're sharing is opinions, because... Except mine. mine well, other than Greg, the word of God. Kevin and I are sharing opinions. He's speaking for God. He just knows everything. Uh, Thus saith the Lord. I have a really diverse group of friends from different religions. I have atheist friends who are very close to me. And so this is a walk that I have to navigate all the time. And the first thing I would say is... Don't be sneaky, and by that I mean, if you're treating this person as a project, and then you're trying to sneak Jesus in here and there, uh, that's just not gonna work. Mm -hmm. And so what I do is, when there's someone who's the other, who doesn't believe the same as me, look the same as me, live the same as me, you have to accept them at face value. And if they're your friend, then if for the whole rest of your life they don't look like you and act like you, um, and believe like you, then they're still your friend. Whereas if they're a project, you eventually say, oh, it's not working, and you move on. So I think just making the relationship central and not trying to sneak messages mm -hmm. in. But then I would also say that for you, uh, don't maybe go to a person who's an atheist or a Hindu for spiritual guidance if you're a Christian. So I think that those boundaries. The other thing I do is I try to have gatherings and do community stuff that includes people of all diverse faiths and walks of life so that they're bumping into each other and finding out if they have a bad idea about Christians, they're seeing, oh, they can be normal, and, and vice versa. Atheists can actually be uh, fun people to be around. So I think it's important to try to integrate as much as possible and also especially just don't think of them as a project and try to mm. sneak Jesus. I think it's great to just show honor and respect for other faiths by mm -hmm. being curious and wanting to yeah. learn and understand more about them. And yeah. it's an awesome opportunity just to have conversation about that and just truly be curious and interested. And I know people feel really honored when we care about them and care about what matters to them. And most of my family, um, from my side of the family, aren't believers in Jesus. And so it's kind of a cross-faith experience every time we get together. But that's just an opportunity, as Sandra has said, for us to model what our faith is about, not push it on others, but just be who we are in Jesus, but show an interest in who they are and what they believe. So, yeah, It's like we said in the hospitality series, that 
that hospitality is always reciprocal. If you've got a one-way thing, mm -hmm. that's a project. But uh, where there's friendship and genuine acceptance, there's a reciprocity. So like curiosity, ask. You'll learn some things. Yeah. And then they, they might learn some things and maybe mm -hmm. they'll come to the Lord. But it's about the reciprocity. Amen. So throughout this series, we talked about traits that we have inherited from our ancestors, from our family members. So this question is, how can we change traits about us that we inherited from our family? And if so, then isn't it just a learned behavior and not an inherited trait? I got that one. Free will. <laughs> there you go. Next one. No, it's, it, it, look, we, 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 inherit, we inherit both biological things and behavioral things. That's when we say inherit, we're referring to everything, that, the whole package that you got from your uh, family of origins. And um, the thing is, is like, the biological traits, they, they may dispose you in a certain direction, but they don't determine you. You always have choice. Uh, they may specify the, things, the kind of things you're going to struggle with in your life, uh, but, but they don't determine you. That's, that, that, that's a crucial thing. In fact, the more we're learning about biology, what's that called? Epi... Epigenetics. Epigenetics, yeah. yeah. We, the, the more we're learning that, we, we activate or deactivate, uh, and our environment activates or deactivates the, the pro, 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 propensities, pro, 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 propensities that we have. And so don't ever buy the lie that you're, you're determined. And the behavioral traits, yeah, those are our learned behaviors. Uh, but the, the thing is, we, the, we're always capable of, of changing those. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the transformation of your mind, getting your identity from Christ, all of that. Uh, and so, never fall into fatalism. Yeah, what I'd like to add to that is that um, the free will piece is absolutely true. I think it's one of the most beautiful aspects of the Christian story that shows us we aren't predetermined in every way. We actually do have choice. However, we, we won't be able to make any choices to change without more self-awareness. So I would encourage any folks that are asking these kind of questions is only to the degree that we become more self-aware of our traits mm -hmm. or our behaviors, our habits, mm -hmm. our patterns, only as we're aware of those will we have the ability to see now I can choose not this and I can choose something different. I can learn something right. different. So a very important skill to learn then would be self-awareness and self-knowledge, learning about ourselves. And others can help us with that too. We can invite others to reflect things back to us to help us be more aware so that then we have more choice to right, change. Right. Hey, so. Kevin, I have a story about how my family helps oh. reflect that back. So oh, I have right. five siblings I talked about, and my dad was difficult. And so one of the things we've done for many years is tell each other when we're acting just like dad. And it, <laughs> what a legacy. In love, of course. In love, of course. But it actually, it's super irritating in the moment. Oh, like, you're, you're more like dad than any of just us. Just like your father. Yeah, yeah. But it's actually helpful because there's something very specific there that you can reflect back and say, you know what, I I'm living out some family yeah. traits that yeah. are clearly hurting others or so I don't recommend that approach in families. <laughs> it, it, it's about changing your autopilot because our brain yeah. is wired to do autopilot. Once it learns something, it just goes on automatically. And so what Kevin was saying is it's important to wake up to that yeah. and, and you can change that. And having friends speaking in your life can yeah. help you wake up to that. Uh, but yeah, just to not go through life as repeating all the stuff that was done because you didn't change the autopilot. We have a great follow-up question to that, but first we want to remind you guys about texting any live questions that you have uh, to the text line 651, whatever it is, 321-3030, 651-321-3030. Okay, you guys ready for the follow-up question to that? Sure. So I am adopted, and I don't know anything about my biological parents. So how can I move ahead when I don't know anything about my biological family background and how it may be influencing my life? That's a great question. I'm going to jump on this one first. Yeah. 
You know, I have a couple of nephews who are adopted twins from the Philippines, and I was just at my goddaughter's wedding who's adopted from Haiti. And I, first of all, I just want to say to this person that I can't imagine how hard it would be to not know anything about your background, your heritage, your family heritage, your parents, grandparents, generations back, etc. So I first of all just have a lot of compassion for that. It seems like that would be just a big black hole of just a missing piece for you. On the other hand, I think in, all, in Jesus all things are possible and so I don't believe for one second that, that anybody on planet Earth, no matter what their situation is, is blocked from being able to move forward in growth and becoming who they're meant to be and becoming everything Jesus wants them. So what I would say to this person is, none of us can really know how much of our lives right now are, are sort of determined or influenced by genetics or family history and how much is just by our environment and our experiences. It's always that nurture and nature mm -hmm. blend. And so none of us here in this room or in any room can really know, well, this much of my life is from my ancestry or my gen genetics. This much is from my experience. So what I would say to this person is just focus on what you can know, not what you can't know. What you can know is, like we just talked about, you can become more self-aware, you can uh, study and observe your emotions, your interactions with people, your strengths, your weaknesses in relationships, the things you bring into relationships in your family. You can know those things and you can change those things, you can work on those things. And that, that's the thing you can focus on. Pray that the Lord might give you some insights about past family history. If, if there's any way to do research on that, that's great. But what you can know is where you can make changes. So, hmm. yeah, I, you know, I think it's part of the psychotherapy, uh, the kind of culture we're in, psychotherapeutic culture, where uh, in psychotherapy, and God bless psychotherapists, I'm not bashing that whole enterprise, but the, the ask the question, how did you get so screwed up? And so let's trace it back, get to the origin of things. There's been a number of studies that have shown that finding out why you're screwed up, the particular way you're screwed up, uh, is not really the crucial thing. Uh, the, the crucial question to ask is, how are you doing screwed up now? <laughs> you know, I, I, start, start now. Yeah. How you got this way is kind of irrelevant. Uh, just ask, like, what is going on in your head right now? And, and, uh, and usually in the process of asking that question, You'll find some things about origin, but uh, the healing part is start with what you are. Who cares? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can see the curiosity in wanting to know that, but I actually you know one person who uh, was like 30, in their early 30s, when they finally, they did find out who their biological parents were, and they were drugged out, just insane life. And the person said, I'm so glad I didn't know that, because mm. uh, they had already gone in a different direction. Point. And so it, it can sometimes be a blessing. So if Jesus was about tearing down all of the cultural barriers that kept people from God, why didn't he come as a female? If God really wanted to challenge the patriarchal culture of his day, would it have been better for Jesus to have come as a female instead of as a male? Maybe the female should no, answer no, that. No, no, you stop. <laughs> I, was, I said maybe oh, okay. the female should answer that. But since you don't want to, I'll go ahead. No, no, I got it. I got this one. Uh, Let's wrestle over it. Okay, so we think it's patriarchal today. Some of us still, we still experience that. Well, that was nothing compared to when Jesus came, when women couldn't testify in court because they didn't know how to tell the truth mm -hmm. and they couldn't have any responsibility. They couldn't speak in church. They, um, they were just thought of as the lowest of the low. You could, a man could divorce his wife for burning the toast in the uh, Jewish history. So... 
I think the issue is that Jesus came and he did tear down a lot of walls, but in order for him to do the mission that he was sent for, to become this rabbi, to have disciples, to speak into the power structures of his day, he just would have, there would be no possibility in the first century then as a woman for him to uh, change things, to speak into that, and even to bring the message of Yahweh because women weren't allowed to speak or be respected or say anything or do anything. And so I think that he was uh, being really wise. God was wise in sending Jesus as a male because that gave him a foot into the culture that he was trying to change. Mm -hmm. he, he needed to impact not just the religious culture, but the secular culture. So that begs a very interesting question. All right. If Jesus were to come today in this time period. Oh, he would be a female, for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, obviously. I mean, still today, there would be barriers. 2,000 years later, there would still be more barriers for Jesus to come as a female than to come as a male. But we've made a lot of progress, and it's partly because Jesus, he sat down with women, he hung out with prostitutes. He, when they brought just the woman who was caught in adultery and not the man, he pointed out that there was a problem here because it takes two. Yeah. So he was, and those are radical things that we can't even enter into right, today right. because it's so totally He was different. pushing the envelope. Yeah. All, all really time. pushing it. We don't see it because of the context we're right. in, but he really was. It'd be like, uh, sort of like a woman who wants to become a missionary in Afghanistan or something, or maybe a church planner. Good luck getting that off the ground. You're more likely to get killed. And so, yep. yeah. But it's it wasn't an accommodation wise. then. So what you're saying is an accommodation mm -hmm. to the fallen culture, which means it's not an essential thing uh, within God. God right, is, God right. and I, I think if he, if he came and didn't ever say anything about this, then he's just perpetuating the culture. Yes. But what he did was he came in and inched and Challenge, pushed and yep. shoved and challenged. And so I think that's what, um, that was wise. God was Great. wise, imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> Great question. Great question. Great question. All right, so this question um, is, I grew up as a Catholic, including nine years of parochial school. Ooh, I didn't connect to Jesus during those years, and I never heard the idea of being in a covenant relationship with him, as Woodland Hills emphasizes. I noticed that many family and friends of mine with a similar background have thrown Jesus out with the religious bathwater. They've rejected it altogether. Do you have any recommendations for my sweet dad who has recently accepted Jesus but continues to feel more comfortable praying to Mary? Mary. Ooh. Sounds like a me question. You kind of talked about that quite a bit. Well, it sounds like there's two different issues. The first part yeah. is saying uh, they throw out the baby with the religious, religious bathwater, bath but her father doesn't. Um, so there's two different... The fact that her father doesn't is a positive thing, and yeah. I'd be very careful about... If he's a new Christian... Um, diving in and just saying, oh, no, that's not biblical. It's not biblical to pray to anyone other than, than Jesus Christ. But God works with us in processes. And, and uh, you know, it, he works with us by be becoming one of us. He's incarnational. And so before I would ever try to correct a new Christian's theology or anyone's theology, you should ask a lot of questions. Like, why is this important to, to this person? And I think I might know the answer. Uh, it might be that the person's Praise to Mary for the same reason I was so into Mary as a kid. It's meeting a profound need in my life. Mm -hmm. And, and what, I, what I know is that, that even though I was praying wrong, God met me there. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and it provided wonderful healing. And, and, um, and so with, with this person, uh, I wouldn't rush it. I wouldn't push it too hard. There may come a time where it becomes a, a topic. And I would, you know, if you're going to take something away from somebody, yeah. 
you have to give something in place if it's meeting a need. Yeah. And this person doesn't realize it, but uh, they're probably talking to God. Uh, they just had never thought about the possibility of envisioning God with feminine qualities. Yeah. And um, uh, I would encourage them to make that transfer. That, uh, that Talk to the supreme being, the creator of all. But uh, God is no more male than female and just as male and, as female. And, and so it's, I think, possible to envision God. It, for me, it's a, as I admitted two weeks ago for the first time, uh, the motherhood of God is, has played a very, very important role in my life. It still plays a very, very important role in my life. Yeah, awesome. And I wouldn't want that guy to lose that. Yeah, and I'd like to just add to that. Um, I don't think God is concerned about technicalities. I think you know, man looks at outward appearances, God looks at the heart. And so if that's the best, you know, we grew up Catholic. And so, you know, we grew up praying the rosary, which is Hail Mary and Holy Mary, our fathers. And you don't really know what you're saying, but... I remember my heart trying to reach out to God, even though I didn't, you know, these prayers didn't sure. mean anything to me. Right, right, right. I remember walking, after I became a believer, I'd walk by my dad's bedroom early in the morning. He'd be kneeling at his bedside, praying the rosary. Mm-hmm. And I just was so impressed with his devotion to pray. And it's like the Lord showed me, he's, I'm, I'm listening to him because mm-hmm. he's, every morning before he went to work, he would kneel by his bed and pray the rosary. And his heart was trying to get sure. up to wherever God was. And he thought he had to go through these intermediate kinds of things. And I think God accepts that. He accommodates us where mm-hmm. we're at. Absolutely. I think part of discipleship is us helping people grow and learn in their under, learn, developing their understanding of who God is and how to have an intimate relationship and connection with God through Jesus. But you start where people are at. Absolutely. And, well, and, and God's think, okay with where anybody's at. So. I think that's <clears throat> the point that you made about God meeting you where you were. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to remember as humans and as the person who wrote this question, we need to meet people yes. where they are. If God's willing to do that, then certainly yeah, we can meet people. Yes. So the same way that God's not slamming down on this dude saying, you're praying to the wrong person, we don't need to be that voice. No. Yeah. Enter with them where they are. Yeah, yeah, I think some Christians are afraid of that, especially the more conservative Christians, because what they hear is, oh, all truth is relative or everyone can yeah. do their own thing. Or, yeah. you know, and, and we're not all saying that. Nope. Um, it's just that yeah, the truth is truth, but... God is gracious and loving and kind, and, and he's a stooping God who meets you where, where you're at. Yeah. And so it's not truth that bends, it's God. Yeah, that's awesome. Mm. Amen. You've talked a bit about generational sin, but how can we break it? Though we are harmed by the generational sin of our families, we too harm others through our brokenness. Is there a question? I, I, I pass. <laughs> you don't get there, to speak is there, is heavens. There a question in there? Yeah, read it again. Okay. <laughs> I missed the question. <laughs> All right. You've talked a bit about generational sin, but how can we break it? Oh. Though we are harmed by the generational sin of our families, we too harm others yeah. through our brokenness. Yeah. Great. Did anybody want to grab that one? Well, first, I, think, I think it would be you. So the, the first thing I'll say is... What is generational sin? Yeah, just the idea yeah. that I, all I believe generational sin to be is my own brokenness and fallenness that I act out and live out that then bumps into others and maybe breaks them in some way. And certainly that's going to happen to those who are closest to me, like my wife and children. They live in my house. And so to whatever degree I'm broken, my children are going to be broken by some of my brokenness. And then that's unfortunately going to pass on ripple effect domino effect to them and so there's really no way to completely undo that or prevent that because we will all be broken until jesus returns and sets everything right however we can reduce that and the way to reduce it is for us to pursue healing to pursue 
to look at our lives and face ourselves in the mirror and say, what are my broken, sharp edges that people get cut and hurt by? How can I own those things? How can I pursue healing and maturity in those areas? So pursuing healing, pursuing discipleship, um, be, becoming more aware then of, of, as I'm interacting with people, how can I protect them from my own brokenness? There's a beautiful prayer in Psalm 139 where the psalmist says, search my heart and, and show me my heart, O God, and show me my ways of pain. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's literally, show me my ways of pain, my broken edges. Show me the sharp pain edges in my life that tend to cut others and hurt others so that I can now protect them from my brokenness. So I think that's the only way we can't, you know, eliminate generational, the generational domino effect. We can certainly pursue healing. We can apologize to the degree that we're affecting others negatively, but we can't eliminate it. That's what I'd say. I think living open in your family so in the same way that was it the psalmist said yeah show me my broken edges i think we need to say to our spouses and children and others around us reflect that not in a cruel way you're just like your father but in a way that says (laughs) it it hurts me when you say that or that tone of voice does this to me Mm -hmm. i think that that's where we're going to get really helpful feedback if we're willing to be that self-aware kevin i've been curious about this every so often i get a question about like um, uh, some people believe that there's like spiritual inheritance or a generational like possession or something and you have to break curses and things like that. What's your opinion about that? Well, you're the spiritual warfare guru. I'm just, I, okay. So I, you know, I, I, I recognize that and I know that some people refer to certain passages in the Old Testament that talked about the sins of the fathers being passed on to second, third generations, etc. I tend to look at that because it doesn't say in any of those passages, it doesn't make any reference to demons or spiritual powers or principalities it seems to be the thing i was just talking about that domino effect of our own fallenness that just passes on because of proximity however we believe here that there are demons and principalities and powers to the degree that i'm allowing myself to be influenced by any of those and they are then resulting in patterns that affect those around me Mm -hmm. um that's certainly going to be a spiritual dimension to the passing on of of a generational kind of sin and then it wouldn't be out of the question to say that any spiritual powers that i've invited into my life that those themselves might be able to pass on to my children I, i don't know how that works none of us can know how that works but so i think for all of us it's a matter of us doing the healing and growth work i talked about but also the deliverance work and yeah. making sure we, we break any ties and break any uh, strongholds or influences that we have participated in of spiritual powers in our lives. I, 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 I totally agree with you. That, you know, there, there's that episode in the Gospels where uh, the, the disciples weren't able to cast out this demon out of this little boy. And, and the first question Jesus asked is, how long has he been like this? Yeah. And the guy says, since he was a small child. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, it doesn't tell us how that happened. But everything about a parent... Parents have responsibility for the kids, and so if the parent has gotten involved with stuff, it can get passed on. Yep. Uh, and so it's good to do warfare prayer over that. What's not good is what happens in some ministries where you get all this esoteric yeah. detail about how to break this curse and that and whatever, and, and it goes way beyond anything we find in Scripture, and then you get all down some rabbit trails. But uh, yeah, just free warfare prayer over that's yeah. good. This series has made me realize just how much parenting style can affect children for the rest of their lives. In Proverbs, the Bible says, whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. But I don't think that spanking a child with the rod is a very loving way to discipline them. What do you think? 
time. I happen to be the expert on parenting, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, the biblical, the, the rod that the person's talking about is the shepherd's rod. And, and the shepherd's rod wasn't used to beat the animals. The it had big stake, spikes on the top, metal spikes on the top of a big stick, just so you know. To spike the... the, the no, the, that's just what it had on it. They used it for other way to clear brush and stuff like that. Yeah. So it's not something you'd probably hit a person Yeah, so they weren't... You, you, or you, just guide, you just guide. It's just like, you know, so it's similar saying, if you don't guide your children, you know, you're, you're bringing a curse on them. And they need, they need discipline and to have boundaries and stuff, but it doesn't suggest beating. Uh, but even if it, if it was the rod, if it was a rod for beating, which it's not, but if it was, because some people just insist. Um, well, you know, the Old Testament also says, stone your child if they're lazy or drunkard or, you know, and you got to do some enculturation here. There's a progressive revelation. And so, so uh, and, and God accommodates that. And so uh, uh, either way, I don't think that that verse can be used to justify spanking. Now, we don't have a doctrine here about how to treat children, so I'll give you my opinion. Uh, I, I, in my own opinion, inflicting pain on a child when they've done something wrong is a subtle way of teaching them that violence is a solution to problems. Uh, the way to solve problems is by hitting, and that can have ramifications. I, I recommend parents use other forms. Not that I judge you if you do spank a little bit lightly, but... There's some research that actually shows that using corporal punishment or spanking to reduce antisocial behavior actually increases antisocial behavior. That's from the academic side. And that explains me a lot, doesn't it? Say? It does. That's what you were getting. Oh, that's actually, I, I hear, you, I hear you. Fine. Case in point. Yes. She had to explain it. <laughs> to improve a relationship with a family member, do I need to ask them to address the longstanding hurts and conflicts, or do I just choose to restart the relationship from my end? I think you, you don't want to build something on a pile of garbage. So I would always advocate as much as possible going and cleaning up what was there, speaking the truth in love, listening in love, um, and then starting with a clean slate. Because it seems like any time you start building something on a really insecure foundation, the cracks start coming and it eventually leaks out. I think this has a lot to do with that question or point about reconciliation and what the nature of it is. Yeah. And uh, Greg said this many times, but forgiveness is unilateral, unconditional. We extend that to the other person. They could be dead. They could be unrepentant. It's us releasing the bitterness and us releasing them of debt towards us. But reconciliation, which is what's talked about here, is the rebuilding and the healing and the growing of a relationship. And that can only really be done if there are two willing partners. And so I feel like if, if the other partner is, is a willing partner in walking back through those things, that would be awesome. It would be, be very awesome. You have to take it at the pace that both partners would be willing and able to, to handle. Um, but I think if the other partner isn't really willing to do that, we're not talking about reconciliation here. We're talking about what kind of a relationship can you have with a person who's not wanting to change, they're not wanting to acknowledge things. You still can have a relationship with them, um, it's probably not the relationship you want. So you're going to have to settle for less than acknowledgments of wrongdoing or apologies or things like this. But you, still can you can still forgive and you can still let go and you can still cultivate from your side a better relationship. Um, it's not going to be the one you want, though. It takes two. So. I think... Go ahead. Ladies first. Oh, my lady. The f I think the, one of the things that you have to realize is that uh, once, that. You, once you make the decision <laughs> to say it all, if both parties are willing, mm -hmm. and to clean it up, 
um, then you have to be committed to then it's done. Yes. Like the, this is the issue with forgiveness all the time is you do the forgiveness and then you do the reconciliation yeah. and then you have to still get those digs in all over the place yeah. and you got to be done with that. Like yeah. once you've decided, that's why saying the last 10% is really important. And by that I mean when we're resolving conflict, we want to say 90% of it and then it's like, oh, this part's too hard so I'm not going to say it. Mm. That's the thing that's going to poke you down the road. Yes. And so you've really got to yeah. say, say it all and then put it to rest and be done with it. Yeah, it's good. Very good. Sometimes it's a little more complex in well, that. Of course it is. It, where, Everything's complicated. Because you, you can believe that you're done with it, but then yeah. another layer another comes layer up. Comes so right. the other person has to be willing to say, okay, let's revisit yeah. this. Yeah. Uh, you this know, isn't it's you how holding you do something it. over Right, right, right. Yeah, you, you're not allowed to hold it as sort of the yeah. ace in hand that you can always yeah. turn yeah. to. Yeah, that's yeah. Well, you did that to me back then. It's like, no, you got to forget that. Yeah. Yep. So this was when we just got texted in because um, we've been dealing with our family stuff. So this person is wondering, is it okay to prioritize a spiritual family of people you choose instead of the family you were born with? And I wonder how prioritize, prioritize in what way. Um, but I think scripture does tell us that our kingdom family is now our first family. Jesus kind of modeled that for us. But then what does that mean like prioritizing? We still have obligations to biological family, etc. And we still, we want to prioritize them, but that's what love would mean. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure what the person means by prioritizing, but I would say because most of my biological family aren't Jesus followers, I do prioritize my spiritual family. I spend more time with them because I have a deeper level of fellowship with them and we can share and understand faith and we can help each other grow, etc., etc. And that doesn't mean I minimize or diminish my time with my biological family, but I do maximize my time with my spiritual family. So Kevin, what if your spiritual family invited you over for Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner, and so did your earthly family? Whoa. And just to make, make it Whoa. practical. Yeah. <laughs> Touche. It's tricky. And then, you know, we've got my wife's side of the family, and yeah. my side of the family, and you the spiritual side of the family. You have five Thanksgiving dinners. So, um, you know, my wife and I do have a rhythm throughout the year where we do give holiday preference to our biological families. And, but every single week we're with our spiritual family. So, and we, we prioritize weekends in general for fellowship with our spiritual family. But we definitely prioritize holiday time for biological family because mm -hmm. that's, it's much more meaningful. That's kind of tradition in our culture. Um, yeah. yeah. Have yeah. you ever had a thing where you've had to, like, someone in your family regards uh, the biological tie very, very strongly mm -hmm. and has an ideal of what that should look like? And, and what they want to look like is kind of what you were describing with your spiritual family. And so they ask, why is it that you're always hanging out with your, your, oh, yeah. your Christians and, and not as much with, with us? Yeah. Uh, and what's a good way to respond to that? We like them better, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I said. Good answer. Good answer. You've they hurt me food. and messed me up, and I need healing over here? There yeah, yeah. No. It is just a tough question, yeah, yeah. and I, I've had a wrestle with that. It's no, like, it's a good question. Even my, my wife's side of the family I'm in is super strong Christians, and... My wife's mom has been the one who has asked us that. Like, our house church meets Saturday nights every single mm -hmm. week. And weekends, so my, you know, my wife's mom has kind of asked that once in a while. Oh, you've got house church again? Can we we'd yeah, like yeah. to connect, right? And it's a legitimate, heartfelt thing. And so it's, it's, we don't want to communicate. Because actually, my in-laws, my wife's parents, are my spiritual family, too. They're mm -hmm. strong There's believers. overlap there. Yeah, there's yeah. overlap. But then it's a matter of just saying, well, who, has, who is closest in my life right now? Um, 
in terms of how God has positioned me mm -hmm. in terms of the time I am able to spend with folks. You kind of have this same thing with your small community that you mm -hmm. have around right, you. Right. Totally. You have the lift folks around you. So I think it's a tricky thing, and, but we can only have, it's a budget. We only have a limited amount of time and we just need to discern where we spend it. Right, right. I'm so. glad you pointed out that balance too because um, I have witnessed, I imagine you have too, uh, some people who, in the name of being spiritual, in the name of being radical, uh, do sometimes careless things with their family, putting yeah. them in danger. Yeah. Yep. Uh, oh, we should be bringing in these kids who don't have a home and yeah. without vetting them, and you've got daughters, and these are guys, and abuse happens, yeah. or anything like that. There's, there's that end of craziness, too. Yes, so. yes, yes. No easy answers. We're going to start with a practical question, just to oh. get us going. I, I'm out. That'd <laughs> 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 be me. <laughs> Give Greg time to rest. Okay, I have a very practical question. This past year... A major family secret came out that has affected many relationship, relationships among my siblings and our respective spouses and children. It involves a serious betrayal and lots of hurt. Some members of the family won't talk to each other now. Mm. We will all be getting together for Christmas this year at my parents' home. What can I do as a kingdom person to help make this very difficult situation at least a little better? Mm. I, I'm going to jump on that one. That's a Kevin question. Yeah, because, well, largely, I just can relate to that experience. The family, the, the man that led me to Jesus decades ago, I just found out his family is scattered out, out east, and they had a similar thing where something came out this past year, secret issue, the family is splintered and divided, and so, and I've kind of been brought in to that as well, and I consider them my family. So, yeah, that's really painful. It's, uh, I'm not sure exactly what their situation is, but the main thing I would say is, um, the person who wrote or asked the question is, seems to be in the middle of this, and it seems like certain people aren't talking to each other because of pain and because of this betrayal. Jesus calls us as Jesus followers to be peacemakers and to do whatever we can to not just take sides on issues or play out, be played by or play out the conflicts in our families or our friendships or our communities. So I would just encourage this person to do their own processing about whatever the betrayal is, try to get uh, compassionate understanding about whatever happened, but be the person who at these gatherings is not taking sides, but is initiating and trying to reach out to each person in just some kind of loving way to keep the lines of communication open. Other people might look at that as you taking sides, um, but it's not really taking sides, it's being a peacemaker. If you're trying to be a loving Jesus presence to each person in, in all those situations, I think that's what he calls us to do. And, and then just working on her own or his own, whoever the questioner was, uh, issues outside of the gathering. I think coming into our family gatherings, we need to be able to make sure that we have been doing the work with Jesus towards forgiveness and processing our own pain so that we can come into our gatherings differently. So. I actually, uh, I almost could have written that question. Uh, over the last couple of years, my family, my siblings have had something similar. I'm not in the middle of it. Uh, and I would say first, you do everything you can do. So I've uh, flown to a couple of different states to talk to my siblings and try to work through it. And uh, so do what you can do, but you can't fix it. So you take the steps, you follow Jesus, you pray about it, but recognize that ultimately the healing doesn't come from you. The second thing I've learned from that is that humility goes a long way. So our, our situation is so complex that we could talk about it for a few weeks here. Mm. And so I don't know everything. 
that happened and I don't know the full history. And so approach it with humility, just recognizing that you're not gonna have all the answers because you don't have all the information. And ultimately, it's gonna have to be the work of the Holy Spirit that's gonna bring healing. Uh, and I don't wanna be inhibiting that by being arrogant and bossing people and thinking that it's my job to fix. So it's a hard place to stand in the middle of those when you're not one of the people directly involved, but that's where we're called to stand as people of Christ. And what I'd say is amen to both of those. <laughs> Thank you. When I tell my story to others, it often involves negative things about my parents, such as my dad never being able to do right in my mom's eyes, which led her to always being unhappy. Although they have both passed away, how do I reconcile my negative past experiences with my parents with the Bible's command to honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you all the days of your life? Well, I have... That sounds like a Sandra question. This applies a little bit to me because I get up and preach about my parents. <laughs> my father has passed away, my mom is still alive, and my dad was the difficult one. And I think I had to do some work on my own in terms of forgiveness, which thankfully happened before my dad passed away, and recognizing how he got to the place he was and really being able to offer forgiveness because he was only doing what he was taught to do. So now when I talk about him, I want to be able to share my story and his story in order for others to learn from it. And I'm just telling the truth. So I'm not slamming him, I'm not being malicious, I'm not saying he's a terrible person. I'm just reporting, here's what happened, here's how I dealt with it. And I think there's a really rigid line there of not crossing into being mean for the sake of being mean. Yeah, I would say that I've had a similar situation too. My dad was the difficult one, left a lot of pain in all of us kids. He's passed away now too. And as you said, Sandra, I had the opportunity to do reconciliation and forgiveness before he passed. But I think what helped me to work towards that and what helps me to be able to tell my story about him and the pain is the, the idea of empathizing with him. I remember going through a season where I, would, I had a lot of hatred and anger towards him. And I remember going through family photo albums and seeing a picture of him when he was a little boy. Mm. And just seeing this little boy, he was a cute little boy, but he looked sad. He had a lot of just sadness in his face. And so then I just started to wonder what his life was like, what his childhood was like, what his father and mother experiences were. And so zooming out, if you don't know all the facts, you can sort of imagine a story in your head that might create the, you know, the hurted, hurt, hurting and therefore hurtful person that your parents might have been. And then have compassion and empathy towards them because they weren't raised perfectly either. And so to me, that just helped me to be able to have compassion towards him and then share my stories in a way that's not... I don't have bitterness, I don't have anger. It's just speaking truth and it's honoring because it's about the truth. It's saying what was really true. And I think we can, if we didn't have a chance to reconcile during their lifetime, mm -hmm. as this person may not have, you can still, forgiveness is something that you can offer unilaterally Always. even Early. if that person yeah. isn't yeah. still alive. So Always. that's something that healing can be done even if the other person isn't there. Do you think Greg's gonna have anything to say today or no? I, I, I'm, I'm just gonna observe, it's fine. <laughs> no, I, I, well I shared two weeks ago uh, about my mom. It's interesting that we've all had similar uh, you know, parental issues. And I also had a chance to reconcile with her uh, before she died. But when I attended her funeral, it, it was a kind of experience that you had, a zooming out thing, mm -hmm. where I, they had all the photos of her up on this wall, and, and um, the ones before she married my father, were, she smiled a lot at them, and the ones afterwards, she was smiling. But during that 11-year period, there's only one picture uh, that we could find where she has a smile. Mm -hmm. And then uh, talking to uh, my uh, stepsisters, 
uh, her biological children, um, they just got a totally different perspective of, I mean, I think she had like a breakdown or something. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that just exudes compassion. So it's always, it's always good to remember everyone's got a prequel. Yep. Everyone's got a prequel. And it's uh, good to know that, knowing that helps you have a more compassionate uh, stance towards it rather than a judgmental stance yeah. towards them. An agnostic friend of mine has a husband who was an atheist and a son who was a non-believer. Her mother-in-law is a very conservative Christian who often warns them about hell. I'm inclined to share about Jesus' love and mercy instead. It seems to me that the way many Christians come across to non-Christians can be a stumbling block that makes it difficult for them to come to Jesus. I'd appreciate any thoughts or advice on this. I, I, I can wait on that one. Yeah, uh, you know, going to somebody and telling them they're going to hell when they don't even believe good in God is kind of, <laughs> oh yeah, this is yeah. the good news, you know. Uh, is, I remember a, a, a track I found one time uh, when I was out in, in uh, Philadelphia. Um, this is probably 20 or oh, 30 years ago, but it, it was, someone left it on this table and it said, are you a Christian? Or do you want to go to hell? It's like, <laughs> I can't imagine anyone finding that. Oh, okay, oh. I'll be a Christian. Okay, I'll love Jesus. Uh, I, I, in, in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul just lays out this gospel where he says that uh, you know, God, has, God is, was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not mm-hmm. counting people's sins against them. And he's given to us that same message of reconciliation. Yeah. So our message should be the opposite of that. Uh, That's right. Good news. Yes. Everything's been taken care of on the cross. Mm-hmm. We well, just accept your acceptance. Uh, that's, that's the, I think, the message we should Yeah, and I think if we think about the gospel Jesus preached, you know, he went about preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and this was before he went to the cross and the whole work on the cross and the afterlife piece. Jesus' gospel, he didn't have a whole lot to say about the afterlife. He did talk about what happens next, but most of his good newsing was about here and now and about a different kind of life right now, different possibilities, different power that we can live out of forgiveness and reconciliation. We don't have to be following the crowd, uh, you know, the idols of the world, etc. We can be free. We can be healed. And so I think that, that if we're not bringing that good news that matters most to people right now, that's relevant right. to where they're at, what's going on in their lives right now, the, the future stuff is there. There's, that's part of the story that we're called to share as well. But what did Jesus mostly focus on with his gospel? And it was this good news about a different way to be in the world right now and reconciliation with the Father's love right now, reconciliation with each other right now. I think on a practical <clears throat> level, uh, in terms of dealing with people who believe differently, who are, who are, atheist, or who are atheists, we enter into the conversation all centered around love and we don't force anything on them and what we do is establish a healthy relationship so that when inevitably they have a struggle in their life you're going to be a person they come to and if you've spent the last years warning them about the perils of hell then when they're in a struggle and more open to issues of faith then you're not going to be the person they come to i promise yeah i've i've heard it said i don't know if you guys ever heard this but uh, the claim that jesus talked about hell more than anything else and that's just wrong. No, it's not <laughs> I will say, Jesus talked about money more than anything else. And that's wrong, too. I don't know why people come up with these kind of things. But he did. He talked about Gehenna, uh, which was a dump outside of Jerusalem. And, and what he's saying there is to reject God, to go down that, to go down that way of life, um, you're missing out what it is to be human. You, you, what gets thrown into Gehenna is, is what used to be something. It, it's, it's no longer fit to be in the land of the inhabitable, the, the land of the living. But even the times he does talk about hell, 
it's important to remember that he's talking to fellow Jews and he, they all share this presupposition. He's not giving them any information they don't already believe. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always important to have a, when you communicate with somebody to talk according to their presuppositions, not your own. So like Paul, when he was talking to Jews, he would quote the Bible because they believe the Bible. But when he's talking to uh, the Greek philosophers in Acts 17, he quotes Greek philosophers uh, because they, they don't believe the Bible. So why would you be quoting the Bible to them? It just doesn't go anywhere. So always remember, be asking the questions, what is the, their presuppositions? What's their worldview? And try to match that. Yeah, that's good. We've had a question that was text in. It says, I don't want my kids to be bitter toward a family member just because I have a negative past with them. How do I talk to my kids in a positive way about relatives with whom I have a difficult relationship? That's a good question. What's the next one? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to answer this one I'll, first. I'll start on that one just to get it going. Um, again, I would say for a lot of these questions and a lot of our family issues, the place that I think is the most important for us to start is to deal with our own pain and bitterness and to do that, do that private sort of heart work um, outside of interactions with folks. So we're doing that before we come together with others. So, you know, my kids have heard me talk about my dad, my you know, experiences with my dad. He's passed away now. But um, they, I've done a lot of my own work uh, of, of healing and et cetera, et cetera. And if, I'm, if, if new things come up where there's anger or hurt or rawness, I'm not going to bring it to them. Right. I'm going to bring it to Jesus. I'm going to maybe bring it to my wife and process things like that with her. And then I'm going to be very careful about what I say to who. And so if I'm, mm-hmm. gonna, if I'm talking with my kids and there is a, a tough relationship I have in my family, I'm gonna, it'd be really important for me not to dishonor the family member or harm my children by passing on you know, that, that bitterness and that anger. And so I feel like that, that self-work, that individual work of healing, of, of taking things to Jesus, of receiving his love, and then processing and venting with safe people instead of dumping on people that maybe can't handle your, where you're at. Because we're all just where we're at. And we do, it's good to be honest about those things, but we need to be wise and careful about who we share what with and when. And I think it's great to protect our kids or other vulnerable people from our goodness. Yeah, and the ages of our kids matter. So when your child is three, you're not like, grandpa's really mean or isn't grandma horrible? I mean, (laughs) they'll figure it out eventually on their own if it's there. (laughs) But I think we honor our parents by the way we speak to them with our kids. And then like with my kids when they were teens and we would go on vacation and my dad was there, they were like, what is his deal? And then again, then we help them enter into our own healing journey, which is, you know what, grandpa wasn't raised with this or that or didn't experience this or that, and so we're just going to give him space. But I think just never trash your relatives to your children, no matter the age, really. But they're going to figure it out. And so then you got to be there as sort of the the correct voice. uh, And it's really a great opportunity, if you're capable of it, uh, to to model love. Um, You know, we're, we're called to love our enemies our worst mm. enemies, mm. Uh, and that would certainly include grouchy or mean family members. And so while there's times you, know, you don't want to be enabling or be you know, a doormat or whatever, you sometimes have to stand up to them, but to always be doing it in love and to be talking with that with their kids. Whatever they can observe, this is a, it's a good teaching opportunity. Yeah. And uh, to say yes, the person is you know, that nasty or whatever, maybe bring in the prequel thing. You know, I wonder why they are that way. What happened in their life? And, mm-hmm. and, and just to start modeling them how they can start, how they can love difficult people. Mm-hmm. This question that was sent in asks, 
I would like to know why the Bible does not show any care for widowers. Hmm. I'll grab that one just to start. Yeah, uh, it is interesting. I don't think I can think of any passage anywhere Mm -hmm. where widowers are specifically addressed or given comfort. And in the New Testament, as well as the Old Testament, widows are addressed. Um, And the first thing I want to say is that uh, God cares about every single human being's suffering and pain, everyone. Mm -hmm. So if you're a widow and you've lost a husband, he loves you, he wants to comfort you, he's close to you. If you're a widower, it's the same thing. He, He feels the pain of your loss. He feels it deeply. He's the only being in the universe that has the omniscience to be able to fully know what you're going through and to actually care about it and to feel it. And the same thing if you lost sons or daughters or brothers or sisters, anything. So we know from Jesus, the character of Jesus, that God has incredible compassion towards widows, widowers, anybody who's in pain or has lost any loved ones. I think the reason that the scripture specifically addresses widows concern for widows both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is that widows, unlike widowers, were in a uniquely vulnerable economic and social position. So men, um, if they lost a wife, they could get remarried. Sometimes they had multiple wives. They were the economic heads of their household. They could earn a living. So their life would pretty much go on. Um, They they certainly would have pain of losing their wife, their, 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 their loved one, but it wouldn't upset and jeopardize their whole life. And whereas widow, widows would lose their economic, if they lost their husband, they lost everything, potentially. And so they could just be cast aside and there's no safety net for them, especially if they didn't have children or if somebody else didn't marry them. And so I think the Bible is consistently pointing out, well, we need to care for the ones who are most vulnerable, who are most jeopardized by economic realities. And I think the widows were one of those. It's not so much our, in our case in our day, but even go back 100 years in our culture and widows would have been in much more of a vulnerable position than widowers economically, socially, etc. It just shows how much uh, scripture needs to be applied to the times that we're living in. Because when we say widows would have struggled, like homelessness, no food, no money, no source of income, like literally. Begging and prostitution are the two options. This loops in a little bit to the previous question in that um, I've often counsel people who either have lost their husband or are in terrible marriages uh, to let, let the pain that you're going through drive you closer yes. to your heavenly spouse. Yeah. I, so this goes to the question of the spouse thing. But I, I have never counseled a husband along those lines. Let that drive you closer to your heavenly spouse. Hmm. But I think it should. Mm-hmm. I think as of now, I'm going to start doing that. I mean, because that, that, that's what I do. I mean, mm-hmm. so I, I think in that yeah, way, you can point. conceive of, of God as your, your, your spouse. Your, uh, spouse. He, yeah. he learned something new today. So. Yeah, <laughs> always learn. We've gotten some really good questions texted in, and so we're going to tackle a couple of those. Okay. All right. I was raised in a Christian home with parents that served as elders, deacons, teachers, and leaders, but the dysfunction was extreme. My sister molested me, and now I take care of a mother with Alzheimer's who emotionally abused me. She has treated me poorly for years and is now living with us, and her disease has caused her to be extremely horrible to me, my husband, and my children. I'm struggling with boundaries and forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's, wow. That's heavy. 
That sounds like a Kevin question to me. Yeah, I'm definitely thinking, I, I, Kevin, just, well, the Lord told I'm me I'm getting a sense here. Um, uh, yeah, yes, yes, Lord. Yeah, okay. I'm going to no, sound like a Lord. broken record, but no, that is, first of all, whoever this person is, that's, that's super, super heavy from every possible angle. I mean, I'm just picturing, you know, for me, my biggest resource in working through issues since I came to Christ at age 19 has been going to Papa, going to Jesus, going to the Spirit, embracing that. But I wasn't raised in a family where my parents were leaders in the church. And so to be raised in a family where your parents were leaders in the church and you were abused in this way or your family kind of wrecked you in this way. I would way, applaud this person for still yeah, for being a believer. Absolutely. I mean, really, it's yeah. remarkable. left the church for a lot less. And so I, I imagine there's an extra layer. That would have been painful enough just to sort through, but there's an extra layer of, can I really go to God? Can I really trust God? You know, is God like my parents, um, etc. And so, I really applaud this person. Um, all I would say is the same thing I said before: that we we all have this pain and this brokenness, and let this drive us to to the Lord, to Jesus, to Papa, to Mama, whatever, however, whatever your need is for healing. Um, I I think it's amazing that is it a she? I don't know if it's a she or a he, but caring for the mother who was so abusive towards her and now is again abusive. But we can't do that kind of thing in our human strength. And so thank goodness that as new creations in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit who has made us alive. And loving isn't easy, but it's possible now to love in really radical, dramatic ways. Um, and, and so I just would pray. I would ask, tell her, just pray. Get up every morning and just try to draw on the power of the Spirit in you. Soak in as much Jesus' love for you. Let him show you his love for your mom in spite of the meanness. Um, uh, he, Jesus doesn't see her the way we would see her. Jesus sees beyond that anger. He can see through the dementia for sure, but even before the dementia, he could see through her own woundedness and love her and see the, the actual, real, ultimate person that she is. So just ask Jesus to give you his eyes for her as best you can, and God bless you. I don't know what else to say. I, I, I would just <clears throat> also add that I, I don't know the circumstance of the family, uh, but I can imagine you know, I, what's going on with the kids or whatever. But you have permission to ask the question, is this, does God want you? Are you supposed to be having her in their home? Yeah. Um, it could be, I don't know, but it could, sometimes children do that out of a sense of guilt or pressure or something like that. Uh, if God is calling you to do this, then, then do this and rely on God for the strength to do this. Uh, but it may be that, that um, you're not supposed to be the one having her in your house. Uh, if, it's, if it's damaging your relationship with your kids and other things like that, you have to factor all that in. But in the end, you just have to bring it to the Lord and say, give me your wisdom on this. Yeah. And we all need boundaries, yeah. especially when we're dealing with relatives like that. And my hope would be that this woman has a community around her because when yes. we sit and ask the questions yes. like, should I have her in my home? And how do I get healed from this? And how do I deal with my kids in the midst of this? And my siblings, you need other voices of wisdom who can be the face and hands That's and voice of Jesus right. for you in the middle of difficult situations. Yeah. So don't be an island and try to deal with Very yourself. Wise. So go out and join something, join a group and surround yourself with some people who will walk this road with you. Right, right. And, and that... It's so important because even if you are supposed to be taking care of her, you need to get out and get yes. breaks That's and right. get relief. That's and right. so having people to come in and take a shift can make a world of difference. Mm-hmm. Hey, Sandra, this one uh, is a good one for you. Oh, thanks. Okay. <laughs> make it hard. <laughs> I wonder what that means. Uh, this one says, my mom never really had a voice in my family growing up. She's been left out from so many things. She's lost what Greg would call her say-so. 
Since then, me and most of my family have become Christians, but there's still a lot of damage. What can I do to help give my mom more authority? Oh, that's so good. Um, it's so interesting. This is sort of an odd aside, but my mom will sometimes talk in a, um, like a baby voice or a fun voice. She's 85 years old. And then some of the granddaughters have taken that on. And I always point it out. And when they're teenagers, you, you use your voice, use your real voice, because don't soften what you're trying to say by using this sort of silly voice that says, I'm not a real person. It's just a silly thing. Anyway, so part of it is to help your mom or whatever females have been impacted by that lack of power to say, you get to have a voice. And I remember when my mom was trying to decide when she was a widow, should she move, make this sort of major move a few hours away, she wanted to be by these other family members who were going to have time to support her, and she felt really like unable to make the decision. And I just got on the phone and I said, hey, guess what, you're 80 years old and you get to live wherever you want. <laughs> and we talked through it and then she did, the next day she put a down payment on this apartment yes. and moved and she's been there for five years and it's just the perfect decision. So part of it is just to really directly speak into that and, and empower her to say, you get to make that decision. You get to have that voice. If that person hurts your feelings, you get to say, not in a baby voice, but in a powerful voice, it's not okay for you to talk to me like that. Mm -hmm. And then even just the way you model it. My mom uh, is so empowered by the life that I live. She listened to my sermon here a few weeks ago and then she sent it to all of her conservative Christian friends, which was hilarious. <laughs> she but lost all of her conservative <laughs> Christian friends. <laughs> so... I think you model it, you speak directly into it, and you just affirm. When, when she made that decision and put that down payment down, it was like, you go, girl, you go. You're 80 and you are going. Yeah, that's good. Woo, woo. Yeah, I should have stood great. up for that one. That's good. The challenge is that um, family patterns can be very, very strong. Yes. Mm -hmm. And if you're in a system where no one's ever asked the mom what she thought about yeah, things, yeah. Uh, you'll naturally default to that unless you are staying awake. And so be yeah. asking the question, like take every opportunity you can to ask, have her weigh in on things and yeah. start changing that pattern. Mm -hmm. it's, it, family patterns are strong and systems will keep everything the same, but our neural patterns are strong as well. I was thinking right. of my mom in your situation. My dad passed away and my mom lived for decades after my dad um, passed away. And she was, my dad was super strong, controlling, and she had no voice, and she made no decisions. And by the time he passed away, she didn't know how to make a That's decision. That's exactly. And, but she was free to. Didn't have the skill set. But though. she didn't have the, she had not developed the neural capacity. So there wasn't the family system that was keeping her the same any longer, but her own internal system was keeping her stuck. And so she, thank goodness, my, she moved in with my older sister, um, for a time, and my sister then became kind of the Sandra in her life to say, hey, you can decide this, and you can do that, and you need to do this, and you need to do that. And she was sort of parented by my sister to become yep. a person who could be confident enough to make decisions and make choices. Even by the time she died at 90, though, she was still not a fully independent yep. person, and I, I'm sad about that because, and that just shows you how strong those yeah. patterns in our brains can be. So. I think it's going to be a one-on-one one -on -one conversation largely. I mean, you're not going to sit around the Thanksgiving table and say, Mom, speak up! No, but just the time spent time, coaching and listening and, yeah. Yeah, and loving yeah. and meeting her where she is. Yeah, that's good. That was a good one, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. All right, a majority of not my family... Not that the family... others weren't good, No, too, they're all been good. They're all really good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> a majority of my family practices Christianity, but when it comes to the various social issues presented in the Bible, oftentimes I am in the opposite end of the spectrum. How should I approach polarizing social topics when these conversations arise? I could also have written that uh, question. Did I write these questions? No, I did not. <laughs> um, yeah, my family's kind of split on that. Everybody, everybody almost professes Christianity, but very different on, on social topics. And I, I won't uh, tell you which way I lean, but uh, I will say yeah, I that... Wonder. <laughs> I will say that... Uh, it's a one-on-one -on -one conversation again. So sitting around the table, if politics comes up or whatever, I just don't engage at all because nothing is going to be gained. It's kind of like when I talked about how, thank you for that Facebook page, post about politics. It's totally changed my thinking, said no one ever. So <laughs> that's not the place to do it. But sitting down one-on-one -on -one and saying, you know, the... I work with people who are under-resourced, and I work with people who are non-white, and so I'm super sensitive, and I feel like I'm an advocate for them. You can't be an advocate, probably, to your whole family at the same time, but you can sit down and say, that thing that you said or posted or did really hurts the people who are in my life and who I care about. And I think an important thing is to say I statements. Uh, I was really hurt by that. Not, you said a horrible thing and you're a horrible person and you wrecked the lives of my neighbors is not gonna be helpful, but to say I was deeply hurt by that statement that you made. And I think the key principle there is that, that those are one-on-one -on -one conversations. Mm, how about this I statement? I think that's the stupidest position anybody yeah. could ever have on a particular, I'm just kidding. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. Um, <laughs> point taken. I think the thing that makes it so polarizing, I think, uh, often is instead of, um, is because you immediately right from the start of these conversations, we're camped out in our particular positions, and then we're either trying to convince the other or defend our position. I think what yeah. really is awesome is that we can be curious and we can inquire, we can really truly want, if, if we love our family members or friends, and they're really different from us. It's like a different culture. I think it's fascinating to study and learn different cultures. And why do people yeah. think this way? And what are they seeing that I'm not seeing? And what, why is this thing important to them? And there's a whole world mm. of interestingness underneath the surface that if we are just curious, we can just inquire and we can have a conversation. And it, doesn't, it won't be polarizing then because we're expressing interest, curiosity that helps them feel dignified, it helps them feel like they're heard, their values, the values that are deeper than the different political positions are what really matter to them and we're trying to get to those values and then we can say, oh yeah, I, get, I understand that. And so I feel like that's something we don't do much of. We haven't learned how to be curious and dig deep and find the place of what's yeah. really the important stuff down there. What makes this thing tick for this person? And to I think people that. love that yeah. when you to, discover to do that. that. It's very important. You're gonna, you can only do that if you're not getting your life and worth yes. and significance from being right. Yeah. Right. Yep. All right so if, if you're getting all your life from Christ, you don't need to prove yourself or be right. And that frees you to be able to be curious and ask questions. Oh, why, why would you think that? And, uh, you have to just know your family system. Like it, Sandra's, it, the wise thing is just to stay out of it. Be quiet. Um, but I, I, there's one family I know where uh, it goes with the Hills Church, but they, their relatives all don't. And they got, have a very conservative orientation, and they would be having these knockdown, drag-out fights over politics, but also over theology. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, and uh, with that, I'll just add this. It's always important to remember that once your amygdala is, is triggered, your, your, your prefrontal lobe cortex, which does all your thinking, all your reasoning, it's shut down. You think it's working, but it's not. For 20 minutes. And, 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 and so nothing of any value will happen when you're speaking yeah. out of the amygdala. 
So that, once you're triggered, just opt out and quit. But this family, uh, they sat down with their Christian relatives and they all said, look, we're all Christians here. We should be able to talk about this in a calm and loving way because we all agree that love is more important than being right. So how about when we talk about this, let's do it as an exercise of love. Like make this, the main goal here is just to stay loving and calm and the, the debate's incidental. And so you just knock it down a little priority, put love above it. Yeah. If they agree to that, well, this, they've learned that they can have conversations. Now, there's times when they still get triggered, but it's been much more successful than, than it ever used to be. Yeah. All right. So we've been talking about the holidays coming up. And this question says, holidays often bring up a grab bag of emotions for my family. As a harmonizer, I'm often absorbing the shock waves. As a kingdom-minded person, how do I remain empathetic but also keep safe boundaries? That's kind of I, well, no. <laughs> excuse we'll me. Just pass the hot potato. I think you should talk about harmonizer, and I'll talk about boundaries. Go ahead. So uh, and I'll think, clean up the mess. No, no. He'll harmonize. So <laughs> we talked about boundaries a few weeks ago when I spoke here, and I think the issue to remember about boundaries is um, that a boundary is good for you and the person that you're having boundaries toward, and so when you are practicing a boundary, it's good to say, is this working for both of us? Now, that doesn't mean that we're just making the other person feel wonderful and fluffy. It might mean that truth is being spoken, but it's being spoken in love. And I think the deeper part of that question is that one of the most difficult balances is between boundaries and empathy. Because you feel like when you're being empathetic that you can't put up a boundary and you feel like when you're having boundaries, maybe I shouldn't be this nice. And so I think the question always is how am I doing it balancing empathy, caring for someone entering into their story, but also having boundaries. Empathy doesn't ever mean that you condone someone else's poor behavior or sin. Um, boundaries also don't mean that you say you're a horrible person because of this. So I think if you can keep those two things uh, in tension with each other in good tension, boundaries and empathy... Uh, that's an important lesson. That's excellent. Yeah, the harmonizer piece. So how many of you would say you're a harmonizer? You can relate to that. And you're, you, that anything, any conflict causes tension and it's Can't we just get stressful. Along? And, and then if you're a harmonizer, that makes you very uncomfortable and you want to fix it and make everything better. And it's just not really going to be possible in the midst of like that's a right. holiday gathering or a family gathering in the moment. And, but yet, it's very understandable. So the downside of being a harmonizer, and I, I carry some of that myself, is carrying that internal stress and, and you want to fix things. And I think, that, but we can't in the moment. All we can do is, to the degree that we're Jesus followers, we can find harmony with Jesus. We can ground ourselves in peace, his peace. We can then maybe be a, a little vessel to bring peace to others in our families. We're not going to be able to harmonize our family but if we can stay in harmony with Jesus and then we can bring some peace to various situations and be peacemakers in our family situation, that's great. But we know that the, the, there's no way to fix the system in just one gathering. So I would just say over time, you're going to try and do the best to bring healing into your own life and then bring, allow that healing to flow through you to your family and allow that peacemaking to come out in your family settings. And I think harmonizers <clears throat> sort of naturally carry with them like into a family gathering this expectation that there's going to be harmony or the desire or the you wish. And I think it. you yeah. hope for it so yeah. much. And I think for us during holidays, especially if we have difficult family dynamics, is that we just have to manage those expectations and mm -hmm. recognize that things that have been a problem for years are not going to get fixed around the holiday table. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, as, a, as a sensitive harmonizer nope. myself, I <laughs> feel <laughs> it, that you carry yeah. such a burden. Nope. I, I hate no. conflict. I don't like to... <laughs> Absolutely not. 
All right, fine. All right. As parents who have already raised kids and passed on to them some of the dysfunction of our family systems, so the kids are already raised and out of the house, what can we do now to promote healing and renewal in their lives as adults? I think the only one that could answer that question well would be Craig, because we've been perfect parents. Exactly. We don't have any problems at all. You've passed a lot on to your kids, I think. No, I'll, I'll start with that wow. one. Wow! My wife and I were <laughs> my wife and I were actually just talking about this. We've had some situations in her side of the family where some of her siblings are just kind of waking up to some of their own stuff that they've inherited from family and mom and dad and stuff. So that just opened up a conversation we've literally just had in the last few days with Gwen and I, and then regarding our kids, and we talked with our kids about that, and we've said, you know, what, what are some of the things you have struggled with? I think that's always a good thing to do. So what, we're not going to get out of raising our kids without damaging them to some degree, and so we just need to face that honestly and humbly and then say, well, how can we be in conversation with them about it? How can we own and acknowledge and become aware of the various patterns we've had of brokenness? And then just ask our kids, well, how did my brokenness affect you? Um, I didn't want to pass things on. I'm trying to do the best I can, but give me some feedback. Help me see some of the things that were hard mm. for you and list them in a conversation. If they're old enough, if they're really still young, it's really spouses talking together or in your prayer time asking the Lord, show me how I might be passing on my brokenness and just help me to be more aware of it so that I can limit or minimize the damage that I'm passing on. But a conversation with your kids. I think, yeah. Confession with your kids. Total transparency. Yeah. My kids are in their 20s and I think... Uh, we have no problem saying, how did we screw you up? Yep, what did yep. we do? do we? And the, the interesting thing is that sometimes it's not uh, at all intentional or malicious. Like my son is extremely introverted and I'm not. And I think no. I just embarrassed him to death all the time, just marching around talking and saying things about him. And so now like I don't talk up here about him without his except permission, now. except right now, but he's not here. Sorry. <laughs> I, so I don't, I try not to put him on I don't blast. I therapist. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I try not to put him on blast. And I, so I think that's just learning as they get older yeah. that I have to temper my personality to be in step with him. There's so many ways to screw your kids up. Yeah, but if you yeah. just keep that open channel of communication and just really say, am I screwing you up? What do I need to do? Did that embarrass you? That's my question. Did that embarrass you? Yes. Okay. Alicia, did I screw you up at all? I mean, <laughs> no, no, no. I'm glad we've got people up here who are like into relationships and family and all that stuff. That's so good. Do you have any metaphysical questions on there? <laughs> I feel like a little a duck out of water here. All right, Greg. We'll take care of you right now. Give me some uh, Heidegger or something. All right. Here we go. Sartre. Cool. <laughs> Why okay, Greg, possible? this is for you. Now, you did talk in one of your sermons about the power that can come from being in a thin place spiritually. Uh-huh. Okay? Can you say more about that, what that is, what it is, how can one get to such a place? Oh. Okay, so thin places, the, the, the concept actually goes back to Celtic Christianity uh, in the 5th and 6th century, and it just refers to places where uh, people sense that the normal gap, and this is metaphorical talk here, but the normal gap between heaven and earth, the distance, uh, is, is thinner than it usually is. And so you're more spiritually sensitive, you get more revelation, and things like that. And um, there's classic, like, thin places all around the globe that people say, this is, you know, a wonderful place to go when you encounter God or whatever. Uh, I'm always suspicious of that kind of thing. Um, just, I mean, if it works, it works fine, but... Whenever it'd be so easy to have a group think. Like some people, one of the classic 
thin places is a church of the Holy Sepulchre. Um, and I visited that and I was just appalled by it. I, I, it the God, the, the, it's just so ornate and oh, it was just, so it was a thick place for me, not a thin place. But uh, 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 Ionia, which is an island off of Scotland, that's a classic uh, thin place. And so people travel there to encounter God and things like that. But uh, individuals can also have their own thin place. And that even can change over time. I, I, some of you probably have had this where, uh, at least for a season, uh, there's something that happens when you go to this park or when you're in, in this place or however. Um, so we can have our, th- those kind of thin places. You can also have, as I use the term, and this isn't the standard usage, but uh, I refer to thin places as, as a, in, in a temporal kind of sense. You go through a thin place and you're in the same locale as you were before, but all of a sudden, you, you're just more aware of God, or you're sensing more of God, or you're learning things about yourself, and, and that's, that's what I was going through. I'm still in a little bit, uh, but I shared that two weeks ago, uh, where you just often see things you didn't see before, and you connect the dots, things just kind of come together, and you just have this sense of God's presence uh, more than, than, than usual. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I found that sometimes uh, going to, like, even at events can be a thin place, in fact, our prayer should be that every service here is a thin place where people just kind of sense the presence of God. Uh, for me, most recently, the strongest thin place that I have uh, encountered has been the TAP, a ministry we have here where you bring the TAP people. It, it's uh, where you just take off all labels and, and this population of people that are often quarantined from others, they get to come out and we all just party together. Uh, and it, it's so beautiful that... When I'm on the dance floor, sometimes I, I often will get choked up. I, this feels so sacred. And it feels sacred even though some of the music we're dancing to is not at all sacred. But the connectivity there is just, I, I just think it's, it's it, you should try it. And they're going to have another one here in a couple of weeks. Um, and then, uh, so as, as, as to what you can do about it, the only variable that I know of is this. I, I think everybody has got a built-in thin place. That's called your imagination. Uh, with the church tradition called the inner sanctum. And um, if you surrender that imagination over to the spirit and just say, lead me to the beauty of God and, and to encounter Jesus, and uh, that is my main go-to thin place. It's not always thin. Sometimes I will sense God's presence and uh, encounter God in some powerful, powerful ways. Other times it's just nice, but it, it's always at least nice. And so I encourage you to, right between your ears, God's given us this, this place, it's your inner sanctuary. It's your, your secret place. It's, it's your you and Jesus place. And um, God can meet you there in, in, in powerful, vivid, transforming ways. And in ways that are just completely unique to you. Completely yeah. unique to you. Uh, it's not like all of our inner worlds are the same. They're all radically, radically different. And, uh, and it's not like we have a generic relationship with God that we all kind of tap into. Each of us should have at least an individual relationship with God, where in that, in that place, it's like you're the only one who exists. You know, it's, it's you and Jesus, and, and you can attain a level of intimacy there that is just beautiful. So Amen. surrender that to the, to the Holy Spirit, and you've got yourself Greg. a good place. Good awesome. job, you did it. Thank you so good much. Job. Good, good metaphysical answer. <laughs> we do have a follow-up, and Kevin and Sandra, feel free to jump in as well, um, but we do have a follow-up so okay. to that. So this person says, when I imagine anything, I am fully aware that I am the one doing all the imagining. Mm. But when Greg shared his experience of Jesus, he made it sound like the experience was happening to him. How can oh, someone yeah. get to that place in our experience of Jesus? 
Oh. I have a thing. Good. Because you talked enough. <laughs> yeah, she asked it to me. <laughs> well, no. she invited us. So. No, but it, it does really just fall on the heels of what you said. So, I'll ooh, let you ooh, talk ooh, first, ooh. then. I'll let you. Boundaries, boundaries. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, okay, I, I've, I've dealt with this with a number of people who have had this, this very issue. Um, now, look, at, even if it is you doing the imagining, if you're envisioning Jesus and envisioning having a dialogue with Jesus and envisioning Jesus loving you and all that, that's still good. Uh, you're, you're getting your mind to line up with truth. Mm-hmm. If, if I imagine I'm talking to Jesus right next, next to me right now, that's a good thing because, you know what, Jesus is right next to me. And so envisioning him like there is, is, is good. So you're getting your mind to line up with truth. I encourage mm-hmm. you to do that. But there is a key thing, and, and it may take some practice, but it involves letting go. Like, try, try this. Uh, go into a, a, an imaginative time. You surrender yourself to the Spirit. However you begin your imaginative, t- whatever that place is, I often go to the woods or on top of a mountain or whatever. And then just try to watch. Have hands off and see what transpires. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as long as what transpires is consistent with the character of God as it's revealed in Jesus, sit back and enjoy the ride. And the Spirit can take you to some incredible... Uh, my, my, my deepest insights have all come from that place. Mm-hmm. About myself, about whatever. It's just like you discover stuff. But it involves letting go. And you'll find that... that y- you inevitably try to grab on again and try to control it because you're not used to doing this. And so it takes yeah. practice. But just let go and just watch. And uh, spirit will take you places. I think in my experience of that, it's helped for me to do the intentional imagining enough so that then I can let go and yeah. my brain has somewhere to go when I do that letting go. So by practicing different imaginative experiences and getting sort of a feel and a fluency of you know, actually seeing myself with Jesus or being with him in a unique way, going to that place that Craig's talking about. If I do that intentionally, I start to create neural circuits in my brain that then make it easier for it to kick in on its own and to kind of flow if I let go kind of thing. So I think helping to rehearse it that way. Yeah, no, I, and I'd also I, like to say, in terms of the practicing, I, I think at first we are, we are doing it, but it's still a real thing that we're doing. So I think, you know, when I've gone away on trips and I'm away from my family, my wife and my kids, There'll be times where their memory will just pop into my mind and I'll just spend time with them in my mind. Um, and there are other times, though, that I will think of them. I will say, oh, I wonder what they're doing right now. And I'll enter into sort of a connectedness with my wife or my kids, even though I'm a thousand miles away. And that's imagination mixed with memory, but it's real. They're, they're real people and, and they're, they're realities that I can connect with. So there is a sense where I'm doing it and there's a sense where it's something I'm doing that connects me to a reality that I'm not directly in touch with. So I can still get in touch with it in an indirect way through imagination and memory. So. I think one thing to remember is that we're all wired really differently. So introvert, extrovert, right brain, left brain are going to impact how we're able to enter into this. So if you are a left brain thinker, it's probably going to take you a little bit more effort to get to this place of imagination. I think... Um, The place to start for me was to have a specific memory. So here's the family table. I'm sitting next to my dad. It's uncomfortable. I have to do it every day. 
bring Jesus into a specific one memory, mm. not into the mess that is your family all at once, mm. but just here's, and then ask Jesus what he thinks about what's going on. Yeah, that's and that's good. a very concrete, I'm a thinker, but I'm right brain, so I'm always arguing with myself. But you bring Jesus into that and ask him what he thinks about it. And really that's a form of prayer for me yes. because Jesus sure. is speaking to me and I'm Absolutely. listening. That's great. Sometimes uh, it's the things that Jesus will tell you there I mean, it may, it's so obvious that you would never have thought of that. Yeah. And, and those are the, yep. the treasures. Like, whoa, yeah. I did not see that coming. And there's, there's been times, it's not, this isn't regular, but where it's, he's so real, it's almost scary. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, this is not, it, it's, it, it, you take on this more than imagination quality, mm-hmm. and that's when you're in a thin place. It's, mm-hmm. You know this is more than imagination. And, yeah. uh, and that's, that, that's his beautiful. I think this is one of the most undeveloped aspects yeah. Of Christianity. Yep. For a long time, Christians have been afraid of imagination uh, because New Agers talk about imagination, therefore, imagination must, must all be bad. You know, it's like because there are fake dollar bills, don't ever use money. It's, it's, mm. it's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, I really encourage you to yeah. uh, just start exploring that, exploring that, and open yourself to the Spirit and let Him guide you and let go and see where it takes you. That's good. Mm. We've had some really good. Uh, questions texted in, so thank you for that. One of them says, my wife recently stopped attending church. How do I maintain being equally yoked if we no longer have that connection? Well, <laughs> all right. Is the person, is the, has she stopped being a believer? That would make uh, a big difference. Yeah. I mean, maybe they have issues with church, but if they stop right. being a believer. Yeah, good point. Uh, so maybe we well, should assume I mean, they stop being a believer. Yeah, and I think one of the issues is are there's a lot of different ways to be unequally yoked, but uh, the question is whether you are able to work out a solution that works for both of you. Is the person who is not a believer willing to still support the person who is, or is this mm-hmm. constant animosity? Mm-hmm. If there's animosity, then I would recommend that during a time when you're not having animosity to work out what the rules are. So I'm going to go to church or my small group at this time every week, but we're going to together agree to carve out Saturday to be our family time. And then on Sunday morning, you don't have to argue about it because this is the agreement that you made. That's just a very practical thing when you're, when you're at this place where you're not jibing on, you know, to, to decide together what the rules will be until maybe you can make some progress at a deeper level. I would guess from the way the question stated that it's probably not a complete abandonment of faith. When, you know, I've known people who have lost their faith or renounced their faith. It's usually been quite a journey. Yep. Um, and sometimes maybe it starts with, at some point they stop going to church, but it's a journey they're on. They're wrestling, they're searching. And so I'd encourage this gentleman to just be in the exploration process, be try to get comfortable with, well, what are, what are the questions? Why, he's probably asked her, well, why did you stop going to church? Is there, are you looking for something different in a church? Are you questioning your faith? Get into deeper conversations, be curious about that. Get into the journey with her as much as you can. If it already is or gets to the place where your spouse absolutely renounces Christianity and Christian faith, well, you're still married. You still made a covenant till death. And the New Testament has things to say about being married to unbelievers. If they want to stay with you, um, then let them stay with you. It's not like you, there is that unequally yoked thing where you're, if you're a Christian seeking a spouse for life, you need to be finding a way to be yoked in a faith relationship that's kind of in the equal faith. There needs to be overlap. But if you're already married with somebody, there's the idea of, well, staying with that person faithfully. Um, unless they want to leave. So. And I think in the same way that Jesus meets us where we are, so if this 
uh, woman is in a place of seeking and confusion and questioning, Jesus is in that with her, meets yeah, there. Absolutely. And so as humans, we model what Jesus does and we meet them with us. So there's not shame and judgment. Mm -hmm. It's we meet her where she is and walk on that journey with her. Yeah. It could be that the reason they stopped going to church was perfectly legitimate. Yeah, Maybe even uh, they feel stuck and they're, they're looking for spiritual growth and what they could use yeah. as a house church. Yeah. Uh, and, and so explore there's other ways of being church. They maybe just think that church means on Sunday morning, but there's yeah. other ways of doing church yeah. and being church, if there's still a yeah. believer. Well, and that leads into another question that we have as a follow-up. It says, do you have recommendations on finding a Christian community when your spouse is not interested in attending church with you? Yeah, I know Check out sojourners. quite a few people, couples in that situation, and it's where it's a real sticking point that they each want something different in a church or community. That's a real challenge. Um, and They're in a sticky place. Sticky place, yeah, yes. Fans, places, sticky places. Yeah. Sticky okay, places. Good. So the only thing I would, and I have said this with, with folks that I've met with, is, well, you, you, as a Christian believer, you need to be as, as sensitive to the other's needs, think of others, uh, give preference to others ahead of yourself, while still voicing your needs, etc. I think it's just a, a dialogue where you're able to say, well, what are you needing? What are you looking for? Here's what I'm needing. Here's what I'm looking for. I'm willing to... You know, look for places or try places out that are more meeting what your needs are for a season. Um, if both parties are willing to do that or even one party is willing to do that, it kind of gets it unstuck so that now you could try different places until you find out what's, what works. And some people want a bigger place. Some people want a smaller community. Um, and, and Jesus comes in sh different shapes and sizes in terms of our connectedness with him mm -hmm. through the body. So. And if so, there's a time when your spouse wants no place, yep. then I think you just have to love them through that because yeah. the more you push and badger, the less oh, likely that person's going to yep. come. Absolutely. So if you're in a sticky place, you want to get to a curiosity place so you can find some other place where you can both be placed oh together. And then yes. the, the theme of this is place. I think he's Places stuck. all over. He's, he's, he's definitely he's stuck. stuck. This is Dr. Seuss version. Of I'm, in, I'm in a stuck place. A yes, you are. Yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> Let's have another question, please. Quickly Shana, moving help us. on. <laughs> All right, this is another one that was texted in. I'm white and have an adopted black son who is nine years old. How can I help him embrace his identity as a person of color when he, when he has and does grow up in a white world? I have made a lot of effort to expand his experiences, but it is difficult since he was adopted from birth and only knows two white parents. Mm. Oh. Challenge. Well, that's a good question. Yeah. Uh, we have a foster daughter who, is thir who was 13 when she came to us. She's African-American. And that's a really, really important question because uh, there's, a, there's identity issues that are going to dog him forever if they aren't dealt with when he's young. So we just did the best we could to educate ourselves. And we live in a diverse neighborhood. And we have friends who are non-white. And so she's already naturally surrounded. The foster care system is concerned that people of different races who come into a family are still supported by people in their ethnicity. So we work on that. But it's really hard in the culture because like, when we go to a restaurant with her, so if it's my husband and me and her, and we walk in, they literally will, three of us walk in together and they say, table for two? No, we thought we'd all sit together. So the culture oh, is not oh, set up to oh, recognize, I mean, am I the only one? All the time, like it happens all the time, they think that we are not together. Yeah, yeah, yeah you yeah. know. So, mm -hmm. so you've got to address and just be honest about that. But I think you have to really make it your... Um, plan to go and say, I'm going to make sure that I'm going to hair places that understand African-American hair, and I'm going to make sure that we're not only living in the suburbs 
uh, surrounded by people who look just like me. Because if you make a decision to bring that into your home, then it's not just a decision for that day. This is a lifetime decision. And so we moved into a diverse neighborhood, not because of that, but then when she came to live with us, it was really easy to make sure that she was getting impacted by people who looked like her. That's great. That's great. That's awesome. Okay. Big commitment. That was good. Yeah. Big commitment. Couldn't have said it better. Wise. We have a situation at our family gatherings where one particular family member consistently makes racist comments ah. or jokes. As a kingdom person, how should I think about balancing love? In love. <laughs> Come at him. How should, Does someone how have a seatbelt we could use? <laughs> how should I think about balancing love and empathy for this family member while also wanting to address the inappropriateness of this pattern? What would a Christ-like response look like? Yeah. I would a just, Christ-like response. Christ -like, oh, yeah, yes, yeah. okay. I forgot. I forgot that part. Put down on the baseball bat. <laughs> I think to start with, you know, Greg is the one who started our, our whole church on this journey of moving from judgment to love. And, and, and that's, you know, God could be correcting us all the time for our shortcomings. Jesus could have spent 24 hours a day correcting his disciples for all their shortcomings, and he didn't. So I feel like the first thing is how do we shift out of the judgment frame um, and understand the person and extend love towards them. I wouldn't use family gatherings to try and correct that pattern. I would try to connect one-on-one -on -one with the person. Definitely. Way outside of the, the gathering to say, hey, I've noticed this happens and I'm kind of wondering about that. And I wouldn't even try to come from above and say, you're bad, you're wrong. I'd say, hey, can we talk about this thing that I've noticed? It's, I'd like to understand what that means for you. And then listen, start with that, understand that person. After that, I would say, then we can say, well, here's how it feels to me. Here's how I experience it. And I've noticed here's how some others experience it. Maybe, have you noticed that? So doing that one-on-one -on -one thing, maybe the person still won't be receptive, but at least you're taking it out of the family situation and saying, and I would do the pre-work ahead of time too. I would say before going to that person, I would want to adjust myself in a way that I'm not going in judgment. I'm going gently, I'm going out of curiosity, I'm going for their benefit um, to help them see something that maybe they're not able to see or well, haven't seen yet. I, I'm less uh, nice than you. <laughs> if someone's saying something racist, I don't need to ask them. I mean, it depends what we're talking about. I don't need to ask them where that's coming from. It's coming from a dark and evil and terrible place. Right. You're still right that we do it one-on-one, -on -one, not at the table, but I would actually do Matthew 5 here, and I've done this with families, so if someone's saying something that's racist, then I'm going to go one-on-one -on -one later and say, I, I make eye statements. I'm really hurt by that. I have people in my life who are really... Uh, affected by that and I want you to understand what that makes me feel and do the I statements but then I actually will and have around the table once we've done that so in Matthew 5 the next step after one-on-one -on -one is to bring it to the community then I would say during the dinner um, I, I'm really offended by what you just said. It hurts my feelings. And maybe can we talk about it later? Yeah. But I just won't let it stand. Yeah. I just feel like we're, the church is a place where we have to be willing to be advocates and oh, sure. for the truth and yeah. speak the truth and go out and say, nope, Absolutely. not okay. So no, I agree with that you're fully. just nicer than me. I no, think I don't think I'm good. nicer. It, in, the, in, the, in the context of the question, I was thinking, well, if you know that going into the holiday, this has been yeah. a pattern every holiday, well, I'm not going to just... I'm going to I'm not talk just going to, to walk the, into I'm going to yeah. go to that person outside right. of the meeting too and yeah but absolutely I I especially if it's a Christian yes bro, a brother or sister in Christ well, I feel like we do need to confront and address that stuff and if, if it's, it's done publicly in the moment I need to be 
willing to say, well, hey. Yeah, it's, uh, sometimes it's ignorance. So I had oh, an yeah. older relative who would a, use the phrase cotton always. picking. Oh, yeah. And just didn't, this has been said, you know, for 70 years or whatever, and didn't realize that that's really taken on yeah. a different sort of, some Absolutely. of those cultural things with older relatives to say, you know what, that's not something you can say right. anymore. Yeah. You might and not know what that means. You might not know that, how that comes that across, yeah. but yeah. you're really doing them a favor. I don't know what that word means. I don't yeah. think you're not. Yeah. Inconceivable. <laughs> the only thing I would add is that whenever you're going to confront anything with anyone about anything, uh, <laughs> it, it's very important to remember that, I mean, it's so easy to get self-righteous. Yeah. Uh, and you need to remember that you're the worst of sinners. Mm -hmm. This needs to be confronted, but confronted from, from underneath mm -hmm. uh, so that you, there's no sense of you're looking down on them. Yeah. Or talking down on them. That's right. And you want to communicate very clear that you, this is because you love them yeah. and uh, want to free them from this. But even that can sound condescending. So sure. humility is, is yeah. absolutely yeah. essential in all these kind of things. This texter said, I had a similar evil upbringing by my biological mom that you, Greg, um, got from your stepmom. Uh, but this mom is still alive and just as evil. What would Greg do with her in this situation? We still have contact with her. Is this good or bad? Well, I, I'm sure we're, what I did, um, I was probably 21, 20 years old, I guess, when um, I hadn't thought about my mom for, since she left, so it had been eight years. And I really, I, I never thought about it. it I never grieved it. I never had any feelings about it at all. I was relieved when she left, but um, didn't think about her. And then the Lord began to reveal to me um, that, in fact, uh, I was holding some real... Oh, shoot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Here comes that thin place again. Um, some, real, some real deep uh, resentment towards her. And in one of those thin places, I could all of a sudden connect the dots uh, in my life, uh, how that has affected me. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a number of times where I would be going out with a girl that I really liked... And all of a sudden, I just lost all interest. I didn't know why, and, and it, I couldn't even tell why. It's just like, oh, it's just, just stopped working, or it's not working, whatever. Looking back on it, it was always in response to whatever any, a woman would act domineering or even like aggressive. Like this one girl, I liked her a lot, but she was always insisting on having her station. And it wasn't that I cared so much about the station, but just doing that, it was just activating buzzers, you know? Um, and the, part of my healing would involve... Uh, releasing her, forgiving her, uh, and I came to realize, and it amazes me that I was in this fundamentalist Pentecostal church while I'm doing this. It, it, this was just out of the blue. But that God could fill the void that I needed, um, and that's when God began to take on that mother role that I shared two weeks, about, two weeks ago about. Um, it empowers you. I, it, the anger was legitimate. Like, whenever, whenever it, and there's a healthy dimension to it. You, in the core of your being, you know that you're worth this, and you need a mother who's going to affirm that. But if instead she, you get a mother who's, as this person says, evil, and they're taking down your worth, well, there's an, a natural anger there. Anytime you value something that gets devalued, it creates anger. And you are valuable. And so let God fill that void. Become, take on that mother role. Let God meet that, that, those needs. And, and she's still meeting those needs in my life, uh, all the time. It's been a central part of my, my, my relationship with God. And that empowers you to, to, to let the person go. And so I called up my stepmother out of the blue. Hadn't talked to her for eight, nine years. And I just told her, I, I, I want you to know I, I became a Christian. And um, God's really been doing a work in my life. 
and I, I forgive you. Mm. At the time, she was like, well, forgive me. Yeah, there were some rough times, but, but uh, uh, and she kind of defended herself. Mm. What I didn't know was that my calling her and talking about Jesus was part of, God was doing some other things in her mm. life. She had a, 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 a ran out of room, and the person was a Christian and was always witnessing to her. And the next year, she became a Christian, and it was wow. just as transformed a woman wow. as you could possibly That's ever beautiful. imagine. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Mm. But... Uh, but if, if, if she continues to be evil, well, then I, I would go back to what Sandra said about the boundaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, have empathy and try to think of, like, what is the, her prequel? And that's helped me a lot, too. Like, mm-hmm. no one just wakes up in the morning as a normal person and then decides, I think I'm going to be abusive to children today. Mm-hmm. Uh, what went on there, you know? And, and that could evoke compassion rather than judgment. And compassion can create opportunities Whereas judgment always closes them down. Opportunities mm-hmm. to grow and to talk. And, mm-hmm. and, but you do need to have the boundaries. Yeah. I think yeah. one thing important to remember is uh, anger is a secondary emotion. It's rooted in something else. And so it's right to be angry when someone's treating you badly, but it pr- comes out of a place of hurt. And that's when we can really, instead of trying to invite Jesus into the anger, invite Jesus into the hurt for healing, yeah, because that's really the root of what's going on. And then boundaries galore. I mean, you need to have full tube covering when you're interacting with this person and just I'm, I'm present here and I want to listen to you and hear you but you don't get access to anything right. yeah that's good mm. until they've earned it if they, right if you, see you can maybe yeah. pull the, the little boundary right. down a little bit and, and, and that is it's important to be flexible I mean you need to be as as stern as you need to be and as solid with that fortress as you need to be but open to God's working in their life. God's working in everyone's life. And you, you can know that. Mm-hmm. And, and as you're praying for them and trying to respond in Christian ways, that, that can bring about a change. And that means you should adjust it. You let them in a little yeah. further. Yeah, uh, your and, story and illustrates presence. that where you're, if you had had a complete iron wall of boundary, you wouldn't have been able to call your stepmother and, and influence her and be mm-hmm. a piece that God used in her coming to Christ, etc. So it's, a, it's an adjusting of that yeah. wall. for. Yeah. So it's not just pure self-protection. Um, because where that, that may be needed if that's the best you can do. But at some point, do we care about the other enough to say, well, how does God maybe want to use something that I do or say to speak into their life? And then you might adjust yeah. your boundary just a little bit yeah, to yeah. be able to give something. And I think if something. you have Jesus in your boundary yeah. with you is what I yeah. say. So then he might yeah. say, just pull it down a little bit. Just yeah. move mm-hmm. it. You know, so and you've got to invite Jesus He's our there. rock. He's our hiding yeah. place. He's you know, our good refuge. Point. Said He's that, our fortress. I realized, remembered this, that uh, we got to go on to another question, but that it was when I did that, and for me, the boundary wasn't an issue because she was gone, um, but it was when I reached out that uh, um, I, it was right after that that I began to cry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, had, I cried two times in my life from the age of six when I made this covenant, and if you didn't hear the sermon two weeks ago, you're not going to know what I'm talking about, so watch it, but uh, I made this covenant that no one's going to hurt me, and... Um, and so there's only two times when I cried in, in, in between those two. One's because I thought my dad was going to go to prison for killing my stepmother, and the other one because this girl I really like dumped me. Uh, <laughs> even I cried on that. But, but, but after that, it's like it, the, the, the nervous system starts to reconnect. Um, I was, I was getting, God was getting me outside of my walls, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, man, the, when, when the faucet turned on, <laughs> I've been... Running, ever running since. ever since, yeah. Uh. <laughs> Cry at movies. I thought that was. Watch out. Saw Terms of Endearment. It was the first movie I saw after this happened, and I was slaughtered. <laughs> slaughtered. We've. I think that 
breakup worked out for you okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, Shelly. Yeah. So. Thank God. <laughs> yes. Thank God for unanswered prayers. Yes. <laughs> oh. um, we have just time for a couple more. But this texture sent this one in. Um, they said they're struggling with memories of some of the things that they thought uh, were discipline with their children. Um, and now their children are all adults, but now they're thinking that some of the spankings were abuse. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump on that one to start with. But um, again, I think we, we said it earlier that we're not going to come out of parenting our children without damaging them to some degree. But the thing is, is that this is a beautiful opportunity where if you're struggling with that possibility where it might, may, did I cross the line? Is the thing I thought was okay back then really not okay? Has it, has my perspective changed? Um, the best way to deal with that is not to just kind of stay in the past. It's to go talk to your kids now. Yeah. Have a conversation with them right now and say, hey, you know, how are you doing with that? There were some things that I, I did the best I could at the time. I didn't know better, but I'm wondering how you're doing with that. And let them just tell you. Maybe it's not a big deal at all. I, I, I thought the kids were the ones who were complaining, or that they're saying that she abused. No, no. she's no. It's the, the parent. The parent. Oh, she's thinking this yeah. herself. She's thinking through she's like, like oh, back yeah. then. Did right. I yeah. cross the and so the only way to find that out is really ask the kids. I don't know how old they are right now, but it sounds like it was far enough ago that they're old enough where you could have that conversation. Just ask them. Have the conversation. If they do say, "Yeah, you crossed the line. It was a little bit harsh. It was too much. I've been dealing with that ever since." Then it's your opportunity to confess and say, tell me more about that. I'm so sorry. Wow, I wish I had known then. Um, and what, what can I do now? What do you need now kind of thing? And the redemption, I mean, that's what the, the message of Jesus brings is redemption for every yes. evil thing and the possibility of submitting that before your children and the Lord and being done with it. And there's nothing more freeing yeah. than getting forgiveness from your kid and moving ahead in a different direction and saying, that's behind us and we're not talking about it again yeah. unless you need to. We're done mm -hmm. with that. Mm -hmm. One of the things that can happen in your inner sanctuary uh, is uh, the Lord can go back to yes. your former self yeah. and bring forgiveness there or see how that all unfolds. Mm -hmm. and, and it may be, whether it's this issue or something else, but uh, sometimes you need to forgive yourself. Mm. And, yeah. and um, I, I've had times where I actually see myself as the younger self that did this thing. Mm. And you have to bring forgiveness there. Yeah. And, and um, you know, the thing is, you were where you were, yes. you know, and, and that's just where you were. Yep. And, and so beating yourself up, up over it uh, isn't going to do any good. To move forward, you got to yeah. forgive. Yeah. You guys have asked so many great questions. Thank you so much for your just vulnerability and sending those in. And so now we've got to tackle our final question. Um, remember to watch the other uh, sermons and listen to those podcasts so you can see the other questions that were asked and answered. So for our final question, um, it is super encouraging to see throughout the Bible that God can work through people who have messed up families just like mine is. Do you have any advice for how one person can help their wider family begin to pursue healing for both the individuals and the family relationships? Well, first of all, thank God that God can work through messed up families. Amen. That Amen. means all of us. And right? messed up people. And the Bible is full of those Otherwise stories. Wouldn't be doing anything. And it's been awesome to listen to the series where you guys have been so willing to share some of your own experiences and, and yet how God has worked through that. It's beautiful. Um, all I would say is uh, that we can't change a family system by trying to change the system. Right. Uh, a system is a bunch of people that are where they're at today, interacting the way they interact and based on good reasons and history and wounds, etc. And so there's no way to just change the system. All we can do is take ownership over our part that we play in it and start there. And so notice, well, how are we participating in the system? How are we 
what are we contributing to the system? What do we bring to it in terms of negative patterns, etc.? Start working on our own awareness of those things and healing for what we need to heal. And then uh, that itself can change the system a little bit. When one part changes, it influences the larger system. But another way to try and change the larger system is to then find anybody else in that family who could be an ally, who is a, they're receptive, they're, they're kind of ready to take a look at some hard things and start having conversations with them one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah. Again, to try and change the whole family is just a, a wasted effort, but to start with yourself and then to, to work out from there, to work with individuals who are receptive and they can say, I, you, did you notice this? I, what do you think about working on this part that you bring to the system? And then little by little, you might make some changes in that system. The rest you have to accept. All we can do is change what we can. Yeah, and I have a complex family system just by the virtue of having six children in our family. And the more people you throw into a system, the messier it gets. It was really amazing because I talked before about this unbelievably conservative church context that I came out of. And I would say I was the first, even though I'm the fifth kid, I was the first of the six kids to say, no, I'm, I'm moving away from this. This is not okay. And then over the years on vacations and over holidays, we would just have really, truly friendly conversations about theological and social issues uh, from the perspective that I was gaining uh, outside of that church context. And here we are, 100 years later, and every, all of my siblings pretty much have moved away from that place and are now like not condemning of women preaching and have just a broader view of things. And I remember getting a message from my one brother about 10 years ago. He said, I know, I know you've already been to this place, but I just have to tell you what I'm learning. And it was just a cool thing because there had never been animosity about this between siblings. It was just something where mm -hmm. I was on my journey and able to have conversations. And not that I'm right about everything, I mean, but, <laughs> oh, but, but I've just, <laughs> <laughs> I'm shocked. But there's just been movement that really really affirms and it has changed how our family interacts. Yeah, that's awesome. Think, uh, and this applies to I think everything of God. This is how God does things. Uh, two words, small and patience. Mm. Uh, it starts with the mustard seed. And that's how the kingdom is. And it just grows a little bit at a time. But that takes great patience. Yeah. Our fallen inclination is to, let's break this thing right now yeah, and yeah. start over and, and we want to just tackle it all. Uh, and that, yeah. that invariably just yeah, creates its own cycle, it's like violence. It just keeps on repeating and repeating. So, yeah, yeah. small and patient. Yeah, too often when we wake up to the sickness of our family system and we start to get better, then we want to barge in and say, yeah. Yeah. and it's anger, it's resentment, it's You must all be like me. And it, it's very understandable, but it's also the worst. It'll blow up the family. Yeah. It'll continue the It'll make things ugly worse. cycles. And, yeah. and if it's because you're a Christian, you've just perhaps soured them uh, to Against, Christianity. Yep, so exactly. you don't want to do that. Uh, can we stand? And I'd yeah. like to close in prayer. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Great questions. No, really, honestly, challenging. Uh, and thank you, guys. I wouldn't want to have done this by myself, that's for sure. Uh, if it was metaphysics, fine. Families and stuff, I need to rely on others. Okay, Father... Uh, and Mother, we just thank you for being the God that you are. Uh, you're always bringing, uh, making beautiful things out of our life, as we sang this morning. You make beautiful things out of dust. You make beautiful things out of trash, out of, out of sin, out of brokenness, out of pain. You're just redeeming, redeeming, redeeming. And, and there's no material in life that you can't use uh, the master's hand to create beautiful art 
And ultimately, Lord, we trust that this whole creation is going to be brought together, as, as it says in Ephesians, under one head and will reflect your beauty. Uh, we just thank you for using us in the way that you use us and for healing us in the way that you're healing us. I pray, Lord, as we leave here, uh, you empower us, empower us with your spirit, uh, with your patience, with your character, with your wisdom uh, as we navigate these sometimes very, very troubled waters. Help us to always be getting our identity from you uh, and not from anything else, not from being right or being better or superior, um, and use us. Use us, Lord, to, to bring healing to our families. Um, and to show them by our actions your character and your beauty to further woo them into a relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's children said, Amen. God bless you guys. Oh, the altar is open here. If you need prayer for any matter whatsoever, whether it's a family matter or health or whatever, come, uh, come up here and pray with these folks. They'd love to, to minister to you. God bless you.